Welcome to Sight Class by Rubens Bruce. I'm Adam Robbins. And I'm Matt Lutton. And today we're going to have a, a special episode, short special episode, um, on the art of sours. So the reason that this is a very special short episode is we're very new to this podcasting game. And when we were recording the third of our panel discussions back in May during Seattle Beer Week, uh, yours truly um, had his computer eat the first half of the conversation. So what you're about to hear is the second half of the panel discussion. We felt that it is still useful to put it out there because we had some very special, very smart guests that uh, spoke to something that's very close to our heart, which is uh, barrel-aged sours. Yeah, so on the panel, we had uh, Kendall Jones from the Washington Beer Blog moderating, but the panelists were uh, Jeremy Grinkley from the brewery, Brewery Tarot, Chad Cool from Wanda, Patrick Serial from Urban Family Brewing, and Gordon Shuck from Funkworks. So this is a pretty technical panel discussion, actually, and uh, one of the things I just wanted to give people an overview of before we get into it um, is THP. So uh, every sour brewer would know what THP is, but... Um, um, I just wanted to give an overview if, if people aren't aware. So THP stands for one of those really long uh, technical uh, names. Um, it essentially, which I can't even remember, uh, it essentially is, uh, it gives a Cheerios type flavor to a beer um, or in higher amounts it might become come across as uh, mousy. Traditionally an off flavor in wine and beer, uh, there's an element of people which um, don't even aren't even able to pick pick up this 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 uh, flavor compound, um, you know. But that's the same for all our flavors. Like um, VDK, so diacetyl is is another one that some people are more sensitive to than others. THP is similar to that. Um, but as an off flavor, it's obviously something you don't want want to get in uh, in your sour beer. Um, it becomes pretty um, uh, monotonic. It's once you've got it in your head, you can't get it out of your head. Uh, again, similar to things like diastol. It's thought to be driven predominantly by uh, oxygen during the, the brewing process. So uh, when a beer is at a certain stage of um, its uh, development, um, if there's too much oxygen brought into the, the process, you can build up THP. Now, THP does reduce over time, usually. Um, there are instances where it doesn't, but for us, um, it does It does um, re reduce. Um, right now, we have a couple of beers uh, sitting and they're showing noticeable improvement, but we haven't released them because of their their THP levels are a little little high right now, and we have confidence that they will they will um, neutralize out over time. There's a big discussion around THP in here, so I just wanted to give you an overview if you weren't aware what that what that is beforehand. And uh, so, without further ado, let's get to it. Question for basically for all of you, and I want all of you to take it. A, uh, a shot at answering this question is whether you're using barrels or fooders how much of your how much effort does it take I mean and I don't want to make this a trade-off like well we couldn't do it without it so it's worth it but I mean compared to like a normal brewery I mean how much of your time do you spend dealing with barrels and fooders cleaning them maintaining them Honestly, not that much because the barrels take so long to, to actually produce the, the fruits of their labor. Um, so for us, it's, it's checking in on each beer that is in wood anywhere from every once every six to eight weeks. Uh, we have a, a, a journal that we keep that has all of our numbered barrels. We go in, we take notes, um, uh, do a little bit of lab work on each barrel, and it's very, it's very simple and straightforward. But honestly, ours, it's a lot of the effort is around uh, conceptualizing what we want to create 
and, and uh, sourcing uh, ingredients, sourcing fruit, uh, blending, that sort of thing. But the actual day-to-day -day activity, day-to-day -day activities on our barrels, to me, it's kind of like saving for retirement. It's like you just kind of want to put it off the side and not think about it and don't touch it any more than you need to. Check in every now and then to see what it looks like. And then, uh, and then when you think it's ready, it's ready. I think uh, you brought up a big, good point earlier when um, you talk about um, you know, the cost of a barrel and, and what that means in, in the overall program and, and how, how really easy it is to throw a barrel away. Like, I'm not going to spend you know, three or four hours of labor uh, to try to fix a barrel. Um, and I'm not, I'm not talking about a leak. I'm talking about a problem that might be inherently in the wood in the barrel. Um, whereas if it's a 90-barrel uh, fooder, um, you know, has a totally different value than a single barrel. So we're going we're gonna to throw a lot of work at it. Um, but that, that's basically like uh, wood quality, right? So, you know, throw away a barrel just because we don't want to spend, you know, uh, $200 in labor on it. Uh, but we'll spend that, you know, $2,000 in labor on a fooder. Um, but generally speaking, though, if we're talking about not actually the wood, we're talking about the product that's in the barrel and having, uh, whether it be 80 barrels or 1,000 barrels in, in your cellar. Um, to me, and the way I run my program is, um, that's our showpiece, and those barrels need to be clean on the outside, as clean as they are on the inside. Um, the bongs need to be set. Like, you know, I, I'm trying to impress, uh, we, we have a, our, our barrel, our tasting room is, is barrel-centric, like you can see our whole wood cellar in our tasting room, and, and uh, for the casual consumer that comes in there, that's enough. They, they just see big barrels and they're like, they're wowed, you know, this is amazing. Um, they're easily impressed. But I'm not really trying to impress them. I'm trying to impress these guys that are sitting up here with me. I want these guys to come into my cellar and say, holy like the brewery is tight. Like that's, like that's the way we want to do it. I want like these guys to take pictures of our spot. And if I can, drive that into our employees and they think the way I think, um, that we're gonna do things once, we're not gonna do them three times. Because the way we start with that is we do it three times because Jeremy comes in and he's pissed because this barrel looks like that and then I make guys pull out a whole row of barrels, 100 barrels, everything gets rinsed down. And, and you do that a couple, a couple times in a couple months and they start realizing, wait a minute, this stuff isn't tight yet. It's not clean. Let, let's get this right before we put it away. And then um, Jeremy just walks through the cellar and doesn't stop to complain about anything. But, but that's how, you, like, that's how I, I approach our program. It's like I want it to be a showpiece. Um, we spend a lot of time, a lot of money. Uh, we charge a lot of money per ounce for these beers that we produce. And, and I, want it to be, I want it to be the real thing. You know, I don't want it to be like a bunch of guys that are trying to figure out how to barrel-age beer. I want it to be a, like a group of experts and know what the f they're doing. Do you top off barrels? Can I, I'm just... Um, <clears throat> all right, so topping barrels. Uh, it's a good question. Seems like um, advanced, so I thought I would ask. Well, it's a good go. question. But, Here we go. But I also think uh, I want to I like, uh, give a little bit of uh, legacy for, for the brewery, where I work anyway. Uh, the brewery's been around for 11 years. Uh, when I started there, I started there to... Um, to really launch and husband and facilitate the whole uh, Taru program. So we, you know, created a whole uh, sour facility and it was, it was a big deal to say, um, you know, the brewery has, has branched off to uh, 
to spend a couple million dollars to create this, this whole new production facility that's three miles away from the brewery. Um, and the worst thing I could have done day one when I started there was to change the beer, right? So like the brewery sours were really good and then this guy named Jeremy came in and he screwed it all up, you know? So yeah, so you can't do that, right? So um, when I inherited that project, uh, they were not topping barrels. Uh, they also um, were not uh, shepherding or husbanding barrels the way I truly believe they should have been uh, and, and the way that I wanted to do. So we made a lot of improvements with the way we handle barrels and the way we pay attention to barrels. Uh, and I, th I believe the beer quality has improved because of that. Um, now, that being said, I didn't want to start, start topping uh, 2,000 barrels in the cellar. But I did pull off like 80 barrels to the side, and those barrels started getting topped. Um, and I can tell you after five years of topping some barrels and not topping other barrels, um, the, the result's pretty negligible. Like, my thing is this. Uh, You've got to fill the barrel first, you know? And a lot of times uh, when we're... Uh, we, we don't do stainless uh, fermentations and then move it to barrel. All of our wood fermentations are in barrel. Um, but you're, you're moving a, a live, active beer into a barrel and putting it away. And if your cellar technician isn't really uh, up to the task or paying attention, uh, they'll have a lot of CO2 breakout and transfer. Uh, they'll believe the barrel is full. They'll put it away, and you're actually your barrel is like five or six gallons shy of being full. Um, that's a dangerous situation. So I think topping has its place, but is it necessary if you, if you actually have good practice? I, I, I can't. I can't say that it's absolutely necessary. But we're talking about beer. We're talking about wild beer here. It's a totally different thing than, than talking about a stout. It's a totally different thing than talking about a wine. It's a totally different, it's a totally different thing. It's a living, living organism. All right. So uh, one thing we started doing. Oh, we got questions out here. Did everybody hear that question? American oak versus French oak versus other types of wood. They're talking about we're talking about quality of the wood. Um, so, so to talk about wood types, uh, that that's a really really deep conversation, and you'd have you'd have to be you'd have to be uh, I'd have to be a biochemist to really get into that. But what what I can talk about is craftsmanship. Um, so, um, there's a lot of barrels right here behind us, and and I'm a barrel guy. So I already scoped this stuff out while I was standing back there. There's, uh, there's two perfect barrels here, right here. Barrel 261 and 260. Those, those barrels are perfect. And the rest of them are garbage. And, <laughs> and, and the reason I say that is, and don't, don't be offended anybody, because the reason I say that is, is it, it's craftsmanship. There is no, uh, in my opinion, and I'll say humble opinion, even though I don't, don't feel very humble saying this, but a wine barrel is a perfect vessel. It, it took, I don't even know how many thousands of years to like come up with this vessel. So back in, the, back in the old days, right, everything was transported in wood, in casks. Everything was, flour, grain, everything. Um, and if anybody's done any barrel aging, you'll know that a, a spirit barrel is an inferior vessel in comparison to a wine barrel. Um, it just is like it's it's rough. It, they leak. They, yeah, you know. So a wine barrel, they got two really great barrels right there, and I think that's why you'll see most um, most sour beers that age for 
uh, anywhere from 18 months to three years are generally aged in wine barrels. Most sour programs are wine barrel driven. You'll have like a project or two that are, that are spirit barrels, but most of your volume is in wine barrels. One quick question. Yeah. Uh, with most of those wild beers, the oxygen ingress is part of that flavor, so don't you want a little bit of that oxygen ingress as opposed to a wine barrel which has limited amounts of oxygen ingress? No, I don't think a wine barrel has limited amounts. It, it's, a wine barrel has micro-ox, right? Yeah. That, that's how wine matures, through yeah. micro-oxidation. Um, spirit barrels, you can't f up. Yeah, you know, like that, that strong spirit, like that's why the barrels are inferior. They're, they don't have to be good, you know? So, uh, and that's just my opinion, you know, but um, I, I don't know, yeah, humble opinion. Yeah, thank you. All right, let's, I don't even remember what question was I asking you, Gordon? <laughs> uh, um, barrels, I, I agree with uh, Jeremy. Uh, the spirit barrel is meant to be used once. Uh, you know, bourbon goes into it, once it's aged, they get rid of them, they get a new barrel. Um, so they really weren't designed for the secondary market that we're seeing right now. But we use them at our brewery. Um, our Ode Brewing goes into uh, second, third use bourbon barrels. Um, what we do when we get the barrels in, we'll tighten up the hoops, make sure everything's as tight as we can get it because we don't want that oxygen ingress. Um, in Colorado, things dry out pretty fast, so we really need to keep that barrel tight. Um, but I agree, wine barrels are, are probably the, the best small format barrel out there, um, fooders being better than that. So we're, we're well beyond time now. So uh, there's a lot of brewers in the room here, um, probably many of them, if not a lot of them, have never really experimented with barrel aging beers. Wood beers. Hmm? Yeah. Made a bad joke. Okay. If you had one piece of advice that you get, could give to somebody that's about to do it for the first time and not f it up. Can I, can I lead with this? Buy the book. Give it time. Do not check it for three months, six months. Give it time. That's all I have to say. <laughs> um, yeah, you're, you're dealing with beers that take a long time, so don't sit there and check it every day, every week. Literally, I won't check our sour beers until about 18 months. That's about the first time I even see like when they're starting to get better. Uh, and usually our, our sweet spot is about two years to two and a half years. Um, the other thing I will say is oxygen. Once you've kind of get the organisms going, you do not want oxygen in that beer. Micro oxygenation is okay. Mass doses of oxygen is bad. Yeah, and I think the thing that I would, I would add, especially for uh, somebody starting uh, the small program, um, whether it be sour beer or any barrel-aged beer, is don't, don't count your chickens before they hatch. Uh, don't, don't brew 15 barrels, uh, put it in barrels, and, and anticipate that in 18 months we're going to package 15 barrels and sell it, and you start counting your money um, before you even get there. Because uh, uh, there, 
there needs to be loss, right? And, and I don't mean process loss. I mean, you know, not every barrel is going to make it, whether it's a stout, whether it's a porter, whether it's a sour beer. It's just, it's not going to make it, so. I was going to say exactly where, uh, where you ended off. Uh, don't be afraid to dump. Uh, we dump uh, less of our spirit barrels. Uh, bourbon barrel-aged stouts and all that are pretty stable, and we have good success with uh, spontaneous beer. We dump up to as much as a third of the barrels, which is, is painful, but it's, it's, it's very common. Uh, a lot of our sour beers are probably somewhere between 10 and 20%. So don't be afraid to dump. You need to dump bad beer to make good beer. So don't be afraid to destroy beer. Don't be afraid to dump beer. It's weird. It's, 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 it's getting more and more of a thing that people out here on my side of the brewery who are consuming beer, we, we so much more respect breweries that are willing to dump beer. So we have some pretty hardcore experts up here. Does anybody have any more questions? I thought so. What do you think about Allagash owning the trademark rights to call a beer Cool Shipped? I don't care. Cool Shipped. He wasn't representing the brewery when he said that. Do you, any of you guys care? I could care less. There's other stuff to worry about. Next question. Somewhere? Here, blue shirt back here. Here we go. Hey. Uh, I was just curious about the distinction. Uh, sometimes people get really hung up on words, but um, when someone calls something spontaneous, are you worried about putting spontaneous fermented beer in a barrel that is obviously a Or are you super worried about getting as much of that out of there as you can before you put that new spontaneous beer in there? I'll make ours my answer really quick. So our actual cool ship spontaneous beer, uh, it's all 100% brand new used wine barrels that we hot kill and then hit with spontaneous beer uh, the morning after cool shipping for what same that's worth. same for us like. Uh, we, we just don't want to use uh, our mother culture beer barrels. So as long as they're coming from a winery, uh, yeah, we do steam, we do ozone rinse, we do, we do our best to neutralize that. But yeah, the spontaneous uh, beer, um, we don't want it mixed with our, our normal beer. It's just like once you do it, you can't go back. So we try to keep it as clean as we can for as long as we can. Uh, we don't do spontaneous. <laughs> Good choice. We are planning spontaneous beers. Uh, so have you guys heard of a beer called Cantaloon? I think it is. Uh, yeah, that, that's it. Uh, basically, so they have this big production facility and they have some beers, and they basically had a send-off, shook off some of their beers, and shot all over their wood sod. Um, we don't have one of those yet, but my plan is totally to do that. Like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have a spontaneous project uh and i'm just gonna like piss every every beer on the rooftop 
it's it's gonna be so spontaneous. Uh, thank you, Alec. That sounds more random than spontaneous, but okay. Any more questions out there? Mantaneous. There. Okay, any more questions out there? Yep, we got one over here from Aaron. Use your use your out use your outdoor voice. THP reduction. I would say uh, Gordon touched on it earlier with uh, minimize oxygen. Um, you to be very careful with uh, transferring out of barrels. Uh, make sure your vessels, your stainless vessels, are pur are purged properly. Um, uh, there's a lot of times where you actually actually can uh, uh, pick up uh, THP uh, in in beers. Uh, the easiest thing you can do to combat that is bottle conditioning. Uh, Britannomyces is the best oxygen scavenger there is. Um, bottle conditioning uh, and then um, QA uh, sensory uh, before release. Yes, uh, we generally always bottle condition with a uh, second, third, or fourth yeast strain, depending. Uh, we have yet to bottle condition without doing so. Our spontaneous beer that we bottle this year will be the first one that we do. Um, but yeah. Um, THP never really goes away. Um, we had one beer that would, really had it in spades, and it, it kind of calmed down after a few months, six months or so. But it was still there, um, so I, I agree with Jeremy. You know, avoid oxygen. Um, the precursors for THP is is usually um, lysine, which is an amino acid, and then um, oxygen, and then it can be produced by either Britannomyces or souring organisms. So I would say avoid oxygen. Try and get your oxygen levels down as much as you can. Try try to avoid getting it in the first place. So, you mean bottle conditioning with uh, with microflora? Resident microflora. Resident or yeast pitch. Dara. Yeah. Most of our beers are yeast pitch for bottle conditioning, uh, with the exception being the beer that I just mentioned that we haven't bottled yet. With well, a spontaneous beer, will be resident culture. Uh, so. Dare uh, I? It's just because Dare you have I. The, the one chance. We condition yeah, get you. all of our bottles. We bottle condition everything, and we pitch uh, EC1118 champagne yeast. Fun fact, that's uh, diehard. That is the Bruce Willis of yeasts. Uh, but that is, it, it really chews through any THB flare-ups. We have had some... THP flare-ups that come through, and it, 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 it does take like three months for us to get through it, but what's up? Uh, oh, yeah, definitely. Stone fruit is so bad with THP. If you don't want THP, do not do any, th any stone fruit. Just don't do it. Just 
don't do it. Or uh, I have invented a bottle purging thing. Uh, I can I can sell you the rights to it. It's fine. Hit me up. Uh, I'm I'm I've got it. Uh, but really though. Very much stone fruit has a lot of THP. We've had nectarine beer that was very, very great. And then we bottled it and then had THP. So we had to wait for three months. Uh, but we used EC1118. Um, and I've heard from many, many of my brewer friends that EC1118, the champagne yeast, is the yeast to use to condition your beers produce CO2 and also it will clean up so much it's it's so stupid like oh it's not gonna do that like well it did it like oh well it's not gonna do this and then it did that and it's uh, it's it's dumb but it's fine whatever yeah dry white wine yeast dry white wine yeast eats through everything same thing you make a beer called Bruce. Make a beer called Bruce. A beer called Bruce. Bruce Banner. Willis. Bruce Willis. Yes. Oh, Franny, write that down. Did anybody see Elsie the light bulb? Okay. Do we have any more questions? All right. Another one. THP flare-ups are universal. I tell you that's very optimistic, but play around with it. And then use EC1118 to clear it up. So I don't, I don't use any champagne yeast or white wine yeast for bottle conditioning. We only use Britannomyces strains. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't have the knowledge of one Britannomyces strain being better than another, per se. Uh, and so I don't, I don't choose those strains based on that. We, we choose those strains based on uh, sensory analysis of what we, what we believe those secondary, tertiary, and bottle conditioning um, uh, sensory flavors are. So, uh, you know, if we're going for horse blanket, or we're going for barnyard, or we're going for uh, tropical, or, you know, whatever we're going for, Clausini, Brox, whatever, uh, any, any kind of Lambic-inspired beer we do, we always use Lambicus because that's our, our last-ditch effort to throw a little homage to uh, what we're trying to uh, uh, conceptually in, uh, copy, if you will. Uh, sounds weird, but yeah, that, that's, I don't, I don't think one's, if one is better for it, I don't know that one is better. Okay, everybody, uh, I want to thank you all very much for coming on behalf of Rubens Brews. Thanks again for our, to our panelists on the uh, Art of Barrel Age Sours. Yeah, sorry to everybody that I lost the first part of that conversation. So one of the key takeaways I took away um, from that conversation that 
I don't think the average person looking at the industry or even the average fan of craft beer might know is that there's a percentage of the beer that we make at a brewery that we have to dump, we have to get rid of to maintain the overall quality. And I think that's the sign of a quality brewery is that they're willing to give something up. Um, where along the process of you brewing, did you learn that that was a valuable thing? Um, I always, I always think about the, the customer, right? We, we're all about what's in the glass. Um, and I can't, I can't say, oh yeah, well, it's not maybe as good as it should be because I, one of the barrels went off and I needed to like put it in the blend still, right? Like there's no, no reason, you know, um, put it in, in sour, sour beers, it's always, you're always going to have, um, vast differences between, um, each, each batch, each type of fruit, you're playing with wild yeast, right? By definition, wild. <laughs> it's going to give you variability, some of which you like, some of which you don't. Um, so like last last year, we had a, a a peach beer that went, a peach sour that went south on us. So we had to um, say goodbye to that and that didn't see the light of day. Um, in, in terms of production brewing, it's a lot less common, but it does happen occasionally that maybe the glycol doesn't work on that tank. Maybe somebody had said it incorrectly. Maybe it was mispitched. So you basically didn't put enough yeast in for that batch and then the yeast gets stressed and you get off flavors from that. Um, I mean, it, it might happen once every two years or something, but it, it'll happen and you need a good strong QA to be able to like identify anything, you know. When it's just one wine barrel, that's not a problem. That's, you've got, I mean, the number of 30% was mentioned in, in there, 30% of beer um, can, uh, can end up being uh, not up to, up to par. But if, if it's just one, one barrel, that's not too much of an issue. But um, if it's a footer, a 30 barrel footer, that's, that then means that you've got to do probably a lot of maintenance on it, you know, to like neutralize it and make sure that, I mean, I don't even know how possible it is to get something that you don't want in the oak, out of the oak. Um, when it's a wine barrel, it's okay because it can have another life as a as in our beer garden, right? <laughs> but uh, yes, but if it's a big, uh, really big vessel, like the the brewery, I think has three hundred barrel footers. Like they, they were massive, you know. And part of the beauty of this is that you're living with a live culture that's evolving over time. You've it's just harder to give it the guardrails to operate within. Yeah, making these beers is risky. It's a investment in time. Uh, I know that Jeremy was talking that he won't even open a barrel for 18 months or two years. And who knows what can happen in that much time. So some of these beers, um, let's look at a uh, spontaneous uh, fermentation. So that's uh, spontaneous is uh, naturally inoculated, which means the brewer hasn't added yeast. They've just let the air essentially inoculate, um, which is the wildest of wild, right? Um, well, when that beer is fermenting, it um, it can actually be uh, poisonous is too strong a word, but it can it can make you pretty sick if you drink it in the first two or three uh, weeks. So you you definitely want to keep away from it for a period of time. Um, I, I find a year is normally a good a good indicator. Like um, if you look at lambic style beers, you know they're normally a year 
um, and, and then they've got fruit added to them. Uh, you, you can normally get a good idea of where something's going, um, but it's it's um, I was going to say herding sheep, right? They they they're all live, right? They've got their own minds, each barrel, and you have to make sure the flock is going in the right direction, even if the odd one gets picked off, you know, <laughs> by some wolf or something. I don't, I don't know, not the best analogy, but like you get where I'm coming from. <laughs> So on our special episodes, we don't have uh, time for brewers' questions, but um, on our regular episodes, each week uh, or each episode, we will ask a question from the audience of our brewmaster, Adam Robbings. Uh, if you want to throw your question into the ring, please email me at matt at rubensbrews.com with a sight glass question as the subject line. And not too difficult questions, please. <laughs> he gives me them blind, so I get... Hopefully not too blindsided, but they yeah, stump the brewmaster. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Keep them coming. Cool. So if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to us on your favorite uh, podcast platform, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcast. I just want to say thank you to Eric Johnson and Quiet Cody Studios for the music, and to this show and and its production. So until next time, cheers. Cheers. cheers.